Hi and welcome to episode 31 of The Courageous Mama. I'm your host, Madeleine Stanameros. I've got a great episode for you. Today I get to talk to author and CEO Tim Benton, who shares my love of communication. He's a fabulous communicator himself. I love some of his apt expressions. Tim trained and worked in theatre as both an actor and director, so it's no wonder really that he's articulate. Though his skills as a communicator and facilitator are currently used for training, for learning and development and for life coaching. He coaches corporate clients, educators as well as teenagers in how to communicate effectively. So I tracked him down to gear his communication knowledge towards parenting and I asked him to share the core skills of communicating well for family life. And you'll see he gives us some great gems. So I'm really grateful to Tim for sharing his very honest thoughts with us on communication, on family and on being dad when COVID sabotages your business and you find yourself at home with two little ones. He's candid, he's funny. Here's my conversation with Tim Benton. I am an older father, so it took me a very long time to grow up. I was a classic actor, total Peter Pan. Took me a very, very long time to settle down. Um, I remember my mother saying to me once, you'll go all round the orchard and end up marrying a crab apple, which uh, I'd like to think I didn't do. Um, and my wife tells me I haven't Tell done. Me, but it took me a very, very long time to settle down. Um, so I think I was 40, just before 40 when I got married. Were you? I was. Is that yeah. quite common in the arts? Well, it takes a long time to grow up. Yeah, I think so, because people sort of chase their dreams for a long time and then they suddenly get realistic and go, oh, this isn't going to happen. And at that point, they're then chasing their boots and they're deeply poor. And it takes them a little while to get established. And then at that point, they become a slightly more attractive proposition. And, and then they think, oh, I better settle down. So tell me a bit about your arty background. So what was your big dream? Do you know, when I was young, I say young, probably teenager, I really wanted to be a TV presenter. Okay. So that, yeah, that was yeah. that was my big thing. I'd sort of sit there on a Saturday morning on the old... Um, uh, parquet floor at home and swap shop would be on. I was going to ask, was it swap it shop? It was swap shop. Noel uh, yeah, Noel Edmonds, um, <laughs> when he was cool, if he ever was cool. And I'd, I'd sit and watch that, and it wasn't the cartoons and it wasn't the little dramas I liked. It was always the interactions where the presenters were interviewing the guests or doing the phone ins. And I used to watch that and think, I would love to do that. That would be my dream. Is that right? Yeah, so for a long time I wanted to do that. And I, of course, there's no established route to go into that. No, no. So I ended up doing theatre at university. I remember it was the last week of uni and one of my professors said to me, it was Johnny Harris. He was a wonderful character. He looked like Father Christmas with a sort of pointy beard and he'd always have a cravat and a jacket come rain or shine or sun or anything <laughs> like that. And it sort of stopped me. He went, Tim, and he was mopping his forehead with a, with a handkerchief. Tim, what are you going to do when you leave university? And I said, oh, John, I'm going to be an actor. And he went, no, you'll be a terrible actor. He said, you should go and be a TV presenter. I could really see you doing that. He was quite right. I was a terrible actor. And I did that for probably best part of 15 years. If you'd have gone straight down the TV route, as you say, there's no particular chosen route, do you think you would have had the success you were looking for? Well, no, I think. Well, not because I, I wasn't any good, because I think I was actually pretty good at that stuff uh, on the occasions when I, when I did do it. And I, I actually auditioned once to present The Big Breakfast back Ooh. in the day when it had two million viewers and it was the thing to watch on the morning. Yeah. And, uh, and I got down to the last ten. For presenting on that, I did my live audition. I found it on YouTube, actually, this morning. Um, I did my live audition at 8 o'clock in the morning. 
Gosh. And I'm not a morning your person. Voice a bit yeah, I'm terrible in the mornings. I look like I've been dug up, and and it, it wasn't the best, and I, I didn't get it, and I sort of crashed out of that, and and Aww. that was it for me. It kind of torpedoed my my self confidence, and I thought, well, that's it. I've I've got to that point. I had my big break. It didn't work, and so and so it's never going to happen. See, so had a rethink. No, I think I just sort of went into the doldrums for about ten years. <laughs> ten years, is a long I know. Time in the well, it is, and 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 just sort of found my way. So, I, I a typical actor, you you kind of finish theatre and you've got no money. So, I ended up doing supply teaching actually, because one of the things I did at university was theatre and education. I remember coming out of my old theatre company, absolutely brassic, and uh, and I thought, well, I've got some classroom experience. I've run some workshops in schools. I was teaching everything from. English to Urdu, maths to physics in schools all around the West Midlands. Right. And the other thing I did was I did a lot of public speaking training and I spent probably the best part of eight years doing some of that. But it does all thread back to communication somehow or other. Well, it does. I think that's the thing. As an actor, I don't know, a presenter, whatever, mm. you understand communication and then when you've got to work with kids, you realise that actually if you walk into a classroom as a supply teacher and you're faced with a bunch of hulking 16-year-olds <laughs> with a lesson plan that they don't want to do, yeah. you have to find ways very quickly to engage yes. and to inspire and get their attention. And I think all of that comes down to communication. And of course, that's why I've tracked you down. Really, the core thread of my podcast is about connection, communication, empowering parents who then empower their children. And of course communication is such a vital key where do you think communication largely goes wrong between people when it does well communication is always a double-sided coin isn't it it's listening and speaking it's the two sides of it they teach it in school speaking and listening um and it's so true when people don't listen i think communication breaks down if people don't feel validated don't feel listened to and on the other side if people aren't clear and explain what their needs are their feelings when that doesn't get communicated when there's a blockage, I think, in either one of those channels, and usually it happens simultaneously, that's when it all goes wrong. So listening, which I think is such a key skill, mm. is a learned thing, really, isn't it? I think it is. I think nobody's born naturally, instinctively a great listener, because at heart we're all deeply selfish, aren't we? <laughs> it's like when you get your old school photograph out that's been stuck in a dusty drawer for about 20 years and you unroll it, who's the first person you look for? <laughs> It is, it's yourself, isn't it? Did you ever come up twice? Did you ever run round the back? No, well, I'm not old enough to be able to do that. The technology got a little bit better. It wasn't like you had to stick completely still and run round. But no. But it's true. We we are all by nature deeply obsessed with ourselves and our own stuff. And so the and so the idea of listening to somebody else and and going, let me put you at the centre of my world for five minutes, feels completely alien. I think even in the centre of a family unit where you actually like the other people, theoretically like the other people <laughs> that you're in relationship with but even so we come to it with a perspective and a viewpoint don't we yeah we don't empty ourselves do we we don't um to use the thing i know you like stephen covey talks about empathetic listening yes um and i think there's not a lot of that around because it's costly yes the idea of emptying yes. yourself and going actually do you know what i'm going to come around to your side of the table and see it from your perspective yeah yeah so how do you teach people to do that as you say it's not innate but it is a skill that they've obviously come to you to learn well yes and, and often it's with business clients actually the listening side of things because they go in there they've got to pitch a product or a service 
And so much of the time, they haven't necessarily taken the time to listen to the client to find out what's really important for them. And most clients, particularly in something like financial services, they want something that's absolutely bespoke for them. And the idea of, hello, have I got a solution for you? This is what I'm selling this week doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. So you have to spend time really understanding what the client's needs are before you can come up with the right solution and, and solve their problem. And so have you found a way to adapt that to family life, to being a dad? I, I nearly asked you at the beginning and I got completely carried away. Tell me about I probably went children. off on one. So <laughs> you did, and then I, I didn't okay. answer the question, did I? Wasn't listening, clearly. Um, yes, I am a dad. I, so that's where it started. Yes, I've seen so about good. wait until I was 40 before I got married. Yeah. Uh, so I married Claire. And then I think three years later, we had Ezra, who's now five, just turned five. And then a couple of years later, we had Gabriel, who's just coming up for two. Five and two. Five and two. two and boys. I'm tickling 50. <laughs> Did you see yourself having boys? Did you have any kind of... Yeah, my dad was one of five brothers. They all had sons. And most of those have had boys. So you would have been quite surprised. I'm hugely girls. surprised. And actually, Claire's, Claire's got two brothers. And uh, yeah, and they've mostly had boys, so you're you know. a boy family. Yeah, there's not a lot there's of Bentons not, everywhere. <laughs> there are. They're all boys. <laughs> Going back to the question, then, have you thought intentionally how to be a good communicator as a dad? I think so, and I think for me, it's a really important thing uh, that ability to communicate, both both to listen and communicate. So I think uh, when I do you know, try and be intentional in my parenting, I think a lot of it is around communication in terms of sitting and listening to the boys, trying to understand them. But also, I think it's important for them to be able to communicate as well. So we, for, for both lads, particularly Ezra, because he was first, spent an awful lot of time reading to him and, and his language was always very advanced very early on. I think it was because of that. I spent a lot of time talking to him, not toning down the language particularly, mm -hmm. uh, and spending a lot of time reading. It's that whole thing. I just remember someone saying to me, he said, you know, your ability to think is limited by your ability to express yourself. What would you say to parents would be the key things to improve your listening and your speaking skills? I think the empathetic listening is really important. And come back to Covey, he said, it's to see and feel the world, however see and feel the world without judgment. And I think that lack of judgment, I think is a really important thing. And as parents, I think it's very easy for us to do the whole judgy thing. I had a case last Sunday and, uh, I was observing the boys, looking after the boys, which usually involved me walking out of the room and neglecting them like I normally do. And then there was a thud and a ah from Gabriel. I came in and I said, what happened, Ezra? He said he fell off the sofa. I thought, this doesn't seem quite right. And I said, did you push him? And I said, tell me the truth. And he went, no. I said, that's okay. If you've told me the truth, that's fine, Ezra. So anyway, about five minutes later, he comes in. He says, Daddy, I think I maybe did push Ezra, uh, Gabriel off the sofa. <laughs> Oh, here we go okay so um, okay Ezra thank you for telling me that that's really important that you tell the truth that's the most important thing um, why do you think you pushed him off the sofa well I don't know I think I was a bit excited maybe I was jealous and we had a bit of this stuff and we just talked about it and I said well I'm not going to be angry Ezra and I'm really pleased that you told me the truth but do you think it was the right thing to do no daddy I don't think <laughs> so we went through all this so I right. think that lack of judgment. I mean, it, yeah. I do spend an awful lot of time rollicking my kids for one thing or another. And I, you know, it's an irony me coming on talking about parenting because a lot of the time I'm observing myself going, well, you're not getting this right, Benton, are you? But I think that thing about trying to be uh, empathetic with the listening. Yeah. And we're and practicing 
as parents and I think yeah. the fact that we know we go wrong means we go okay how would I handle that differently next yeah it's time? a reflection isn't it I think so yeah and I think it is that and also there's a difference between knowing and doing so I can go out and teach this stuff <laughs> <laughs> as close as we said you teach listening but you don't do it do you because the thing I have discovered and this comes back to the older dad thing with very very young kids it's just exhausting yeah and, you know, I used to have a lifestyle where I would I would go away fairly regularly. And most weeks I'd either be at Paddington Station or Heathrow Airport. And I'd go away and then come back like Santa Claus at the end of the week. And then the whole family was wonderful because I'd had a nice break. And that, <laughs> now, since COVID, I'm here all the time and there's no break. And it's just yeah. exhausting. It's just exhausting. And they do talk a lot. Oh, don't they just? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I don't want to dampen that and down. I love that. Because I think it's really important. But sometimes you just go, oh, my word. Yeah. Give me a really, give me five. Can, just, just, can I just have some time out? <laughs> so empathetic listening. Yeah. What would you say that is? Well, let's look at it the other way of what it isn't. And I think sometimes people do behaviours that they think are empathetic listening. But I think empathetic listening is a little bit like snakes and ladders. There are some behaviours that will move you towards it and there's some that will move away. And I think the stuff that we are always taught, well, this is good listening, you, th- you should do this, this and this, is often not what it should be. So, for example, you know, we're told to ask lots of probing questions, aren't we? So why don't you ask question, 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 which is great if there's no emotion involved. Mm. But as soon as there's emotion, and with kids there's always emotion, or with family there's always emotion, that's when the shutters come up and people tend not mm. to feel communicate. Like at that well, point. you do, and I think when people are probed, they don't want to do it, do they? Mm. Um, advice. You know, it always amazed me when I became a parent how many people came out of the woodwork to give me parenting advice. Mm. I mean, some of them even had kids. And, uh, <laughs> and people love to give advice. But again, if you don't understand the whole situation, yep. it comes back to listening. If you don't understand the situation, advice is always hollow, isn't it? Yes. So I think there are behaviours that people do that try to empathise, try to put themselves there. You know, people go, oh, uh, I was in a situation like this, yep. and they make it about them. And that's not empathy at all. It's, it's so, not, no. it's not. And they're the things that people do because we're told, oh, that's probably what you should do. Yeah. So going back to your snakes and ladders. Yeah. How do you lean in? I think there's a big thing about silence. Mm. And I think we live in a world where we're very afraid of silence Mm. and we're not used to it. And it's probably quite a British thing as well that since the conversation has sort of ended for about five seconds, people just feel awkward and feel the need to say something. Whereas actually it's in the silence is when people trust and open up and process. So if you speak over the silence, you know, people are less likely to contribute. And when it can you... be such a magic space, can't it? Especially if someone's grappling for a thought or... It's a friendly silence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a warm silence. So that's your leaning in. It is. I've got, I've got a very wonderful mentor by the name of Richard who's just a genius at this stuff. It's where he'll just ask an open question and then he'll just stop. And he'll let it get awkward so that you speak. Right. <laughs> and, but he does it in a rather wonderful way. He's very warm and... Uh, yeah. and and you feel the need to open up to him. And that's often when the interesting stuff comes out. Well, it is, it is, it is, when people just have that space, because people are not used to having space. Mm. They're not used to people giving them the gift of attention. No, because innately, I mean, it'd be interesting to ask anyone out there who's, you know, driving, jogging, listening to this, doing what they're <laughs> doing, you know, how would you rate yourself as a listener? And I bet we'd all put ourselves around the kind of eight mark. But actually, I feel I've learned as time's gone on. I was nowhere near eight. No. I had a huge amount of learning to do, and still do. You know, We're all on a journey, aren't we? We are. 
are we're practicing aren't we <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's brilliant thing to it's a brilliant thing to talk about though because i am so sure at five and two yours are working out whether or not you are a good listener they're obviously not going and scoring you on a sheet when they no. go to bed but when they're 15 they will have worked out can i tell dad yes can i tell mom and so this early listening you're talking about that making space making time for them is yeah. so significant and don't get me wrong we don't always get that right by any means whatsoever but i think that's that's sort of the intention. I think you're absolutely right with that. I mean, I see that with, with teenagers. that They've sort of closed down and they'll no longer talk to mum and dad or mum mm. or dad at all. Mm. Um, and I wonder where that begins. And I think it comes back to that trust thing, doesn't it? That actually, is it safe mm. for me to say, I did this and I got it wrong. Mm. I pushed Gabriel off the sofa. Um, I didn't tell you before, but actually I think it's important for me to say it. Yeah. And knowing that, all right, you might get in trouble for it, but you're not going to necessarily be judged. What's more important is to say, actually, regardless of what I've done, I can come to you with this. Yes. And when it comes to, I don't know, getting in trouble with boys or girls or drugs or drink or whatever else that's going on. Hopefully not all of them. Or, well, <laughs> not all on the same day. Uh, it's it, if, if, if you've kind of got that trust that you can go, look, I've yeah. stuffed up, but I can tell at least these two people, this person, I can still go to them. Yeah, they're on my side. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think that I'm just processing. I think with my boys, I think if we get to the point where it's like that, where they they know it doesn't matter how badly wrong it's gone, they can still come to us. And, and you know, that's part of being a parent, that's isn't it? Your, your job yeah. is to go, it'll be okay. And it, and it may take a while for it to be okay, but helping them through that and helping them work it out as well. Mm. That and ability to help them problem solve. Don't end up the way they hope. No. That you will always be okay. Yeah. Okay together. And I get that with Ezra sometimes. Um, so he'll, what, he'll have done something. Well, well, like, it's that whole thing of um, I've done something wrong, but daddy, do you still love me? Yes. And we'll get that question Do you still love me? Yes, oh, but I did that and I was naughty. Yes, but I still love you. Yes. Nothing will stop me loving you. And as you say, there are many teenagers that can't talk to their parents. And in fairness yeah. to listeners out there, there will be mitigating factors. There yep. can be trauma. Yep. There can be all sorts of things that might have gone on at school. There might be like, you know, some spectrum issues. But by and large, the more we can learn about listening well when they're small, the better equipped we are for when we move into those years where they might naturally stop being more independent. Yeah, and that's part of their neurological development as well, isn't it? That mm. you leave the nest and there's something inbuilt that actually you need to go over the hill and forage in the field beyond. Absolutely. There's something that's built into us that makes us want to do that. But I think there's also still that connection well, that should be if the attachment is there, that mm. they can still come home. What other things would you throw into sort of being a good listener? I think it's validating the emotion behind what's going on I so on the money there. Love that. i think it was carl young who said we leak truth all the time whether you're five or 50 i think there's something that when you're talking to another person there's always emotion there's always stuff at the heart of it isn't there yeah and gradually some of that stuff leaks out and if you can put into words what it is you feel that that person is is feeling then i think that that's hugely rewarding because people feel validated. There's a hostage negotiator, a guy by the name of Richard Mullinder, and he said when he's dealing with quite high-pressure terrorist negotiations and things like that, he uses the phrase, it feels as if, and then he tries to put into words the emotion that's being felt. And one of two things happens. They either go, yes, that's absolutely it, and he said, and then they tell you more, uh -huh. 
Or they go, no, that's not it at all. And then they tell you more. Okay. But either way, more comes out. Right. So if you can put into words something of the emotion that they f you feel that they are potentially feeling, that sounds dreadful. That mm. must have been really tough. You must have been really embarrassed by that. Whatever it might be, just putting into words the emotion that they seem to be leaking mm. can be a very, very powerful thing. And actually wiring ourselves to do that when they're really small yeah. is really significant. So when Ezra comes home from school, if he has had a bad experience, would that be the language that you would use with him to try and get him to sort of open up? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. That that would be the thing. He came back the other day and he, he'd made a little friend, Joe. Oh. And uh, and then I, he seemed really sad. I said, Ezra, you seem really sad today. And he said, yeah, I don't want to go to school. And I said, that's a shame. And then we started talking a little bit more and it transpired that Joe, his little friend, every time he walked up and tried to play with him, Joe would run off. So at this point, he was feeling very icy, didn't have any friends. And I said, so it must feel very lonely. And he said, yes, nobody wants to be my friend. But just in that moment, it kind of gave him the confidence, I think, by just by putting into words, look, this is okay. Mm. You do feel this, but it's okay. I think it, it kind of gave him a little bit the courage to move on, really. And we don't grow out of that. No. I think, you know, having our emotions validated at any stage empowers conversation, doesn't it? Completely. Yeah. Because yeah. we're all like that. We all want to be at a deep level understood we do and there's such and a lack yeah and there's such a lack of empathy out there isn't mm. it you kind of think that whole thing about see and feel the world how others see and feel the world without judgment mm. how many people in your life actually listen in that way three is there anything else that you would add to the listening bucket when it comes to parents and little ones or parents and big ones i think sometimes it's it's showing that you having understood showing that you understand so uh for, well, yes, it's I, I can relate to that because, and and showing that you've sort of walked that path before as well. It might not be exactly the same, but actually that's been there. Mm. So I think when we talk about the lack of friends thing, and I was saying, you know, the people that I ended up being friends with weren't necessarily the people that I met on the first day. Right. And yes. and there have been times when I've turned up somewhere and I've not known anybody, and it takes a little while, and you think you've made a friend and you haven't. Yeah. Yeah. So reflecting a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's also that thing, isn't it, that we, we spend so much time broadcasting towards our kids. Listen to me. This yeah. is important. All the rest of it. And then, you know, we need to give them space. It's really hard because they do absolutely witter on. Um, and we have this thing where we use selective listening with them, don't we? Where we sort of tune in and out like an old radio. Yeah. You sort of occasionally you hit something, oh, that's interesting. And then it's off into <laughs> static again. And I certainly have that with, Gabe, with Ezra because he'll go on and on and on and... And it's really hard sometimes just to go, I'm going to sit and I'm going to give my attention to all of yeah. this. Because you just think, oh, I've got a million and one jobs to do. And he's wittering on. And that's it, isn't it? It, it's, it is that they could talk all day. And we yeah. have to balance other things and listening to them at the same and time. And Claire challenges me on that sometimes. She said, look, he's, he's kicking off because he just wants your attention. Just mm. go and speak to him for a little bit. Mm. And as we will do this thing, we'll go, daddy, 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 daddy. And he won't stop doing it until I go, yes, Ezra. Yes. And I, I've got to the point where I can slightly tune it out and it drives Claire mad. She'll go, just answer him and he'll stop. <laughs> no, yes. <laughs> and actually he just wants you to get to his level, yeah. doesn't he? He I does. Want to hear what yeah. I've got to say, Daddy. Exactly, exactly. And it goes a long way, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, I th But I think I find this really hard in this whole lockdown thing where my entire business model has changed. I'm now in the office on Zoom calls, doing training on Zoom or coaching on Zoom. I'm no longer clearing off abroad or down to London. So I'm here all the flipping time. And because of that, um, it's much harder because there's just onslaught of kids 
relentlessly throughout the day. And so I, work bleeds into every aspect of life. It's very hard to compartmentalise that. Right. And I'm still fighting that battle of going, how do I close down work and then that's work, this is family. Mm. And, and instead I'm having that bleed across all aspects of life. So I'm finding that I'm not fully giving them everything I would have done prior to all this happening. So it's an ongoing battle really to work out how do I give them the space that they need and they should have. I bet a lot of dads will be relating to that right now. Yeah, I think it's probably life a common thing. Mm. Because life has changed for so many of us. It has, and as you say, it is bleeding in. So you might think, well, I'll dash out and do that, and then I'll come back. And that transition, I find it really yeah. hard switching hats. And also, you might have had a decompression time when yes. you were driving yes. back from the airport or Completely. Adamson Station. Completely, whereas it's that. not. It's you, You're off the Zoom call, and suddenly the vomiting child has come your direction. <laughs> Or, uh, or or you've got a vomit in charge, you're changing a nappy, and then suddenly you've got to go and talk to a CEO on a on a Zoom call, and it's yeah, it's that that massive uh, yeah, a gear change. I think is, is is really really strange, and because of that, I think patience gets gets narrowed. Yeah, and I think that's the thing I've spotted over the last nine months is just how grumpy and stroppy I've become. <laughs> you sound fun. <laughs> well, really, well no, I'm awful. And as we said this morning, Dad's always got a grumpy face in the mornings. Um, and I do, I'm not a morning person. I'm sure you're not alone. But you're, what you've said there is really significant. They've done neurological research and found that when we switch between things, we lose 30% of our capacity. That research was connected to social media, of course. You know, if mm. I'm talking to you, I'm looking at social media. Talking to you, looking at my... For, you know, and, and so on throughout the day. We hemorrhage yeah. capacity. And that's what you're saying is that coming in and out of your house and in and out of work mode, you're feeling tired and grumpy and stretched. And yes. Probably because you genuinely are yep. trying to do the same amount on less capacity because it's not compartmentalised. Well, it's limited bandwidth. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not compartmentalised. I think that's the thing that's hard. And, and that flags up another thing as well, doesn't it? The whole social media thing, I mm. think, is a massive barrier with kids. And one of the things we've had to be really intentional about is making sure that we're not on our phone too much when the kids are around. Because again, what message does that give to the kids oh, that well actually I've got my nose in the phone and you're talking to me and actually making sure that thing goes down or away so that I can give the boys their, my attention, my full attention. Because I think otherwise that's going to generate habits in them as well, isn't it? That later on they're going to have their nose in the phone and when Absolutely. I speak to them, I'm going to get no response. Absolutely. Are you disciplined in that in general, or do you have certain times of the day when you put it away? Um, I'm terrible with self-discipline at the best of times. <laughs> but, but honest. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm dreadful. Absolutely no self-control whatsoever. Um, so Claire is very good at being my accountability conscience partner yeah. uh, and pointing out to me if I'm doing this. And I think I've just got a little bit better now of, of trying to put it down and walk away from it for periods of time where I'll go, I'll spend five minutes just to look at that and then I'm going to leave it somewhere mm. and ignore it. And the, the lovely thing about working from home is I think because pace of life has slowed down considerably, there's not that slight anxiety around, oh, have I had an email from that person? Have I mm. responded to this? That's not been quite the same same as it has been. Really? So, Are you finding the pace? Yeah, I'm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I had a week back in March where my entire pipeline of work for the year just completely collapsed over the space of about six days which Gosh. was such a slightly frightening moment. Yeah. I mean, gradually, a lot of stuff has come back in again, thank goodness, Good. and it, and it's actually been all right. But um, I found myself, certainly in the early days of lockdown, just going, well, I've got a lot of work here. Yeah. So I just potter in the garden or spend some time with the boys or made a pirate ship and uh, <laughs> all those kind of ridiculous ship. things that Fabulous. you do. 
Good yeah. use of time. Good, and, and old wood. Repurposing. Exactly. I'm just interrupting this podcast for a moment to say if you're enjoying The Courageous Mama, I think you'll love the book Parenting for Life. This is what readers have to say. This book is absolute gold dust. I bought this book to give away, but I'm keeping it. This book has so many helpful suggestions for the modern family, and it's helpful for our marriage too. This book is a must in every home. If I was able to buy just one book on parenting, this would be the book. Parenting for Life is available to listeners at a special rate on the Courageous Mama website and blog, thecourageousmama.com. There's a link in the show notes. But that's the strange thing as well. I think, you know, with the whole COVID thing, there were many of us, I think, probably in this boat where suddenly you, you your purpose has been, I go out, I do work, I forage, I hunt, I gather, I come home, and then there's family time. And suddenly that's been ripped away. And, yeah. and I went from being somebody who was the main breadwinner to being daddy daycare. Right. And that overnight. was an, yeah, overnight. And that was an extraordinary transition. Yeah. How did you cope with that? Very badly. <laughs> <laughs> I built a pirate ship. I threw myself into projects. Right. But I think actually, you know, it's the, the whole silver lining of all this stuff is that it has given us more time as family and more time to communicate. Claire and I have spent more time talking about our marriage, I think, than we ever have done before that's in great. the prior 10 years we've been together. And that's been a really golden time. And it's it's also been a great time to, to bond with the kids, to talk, to listen, to read. I just want to go back to that, talking about your marriage. Mm. I love that. Not a lot of people talk about their marriage. What does that look like? Do you have a, a time in the week or is that an organic thing? It was. There was a course that was run by our church, actually, a marriage course, uh, which was one that they used to do in the room, which was always a bit awkward because you'd have to go there and sit with a lot of other people and chat about your marriage in pairs <laughs> whilst other people were watching you have an argument. And, and because we could do it online because of COVID, right. it was great. So just a Thursday evening, we'd, we'd work our way through the videos and pause at the appropriate moments and have the discussion and go through the books. And that was just brilliant because on a Thursday evening, we just had this six-week course of thinking about what was really important in our marriage. And then from that, it sort of I think it started the dialogue I mean, I don't think, I think we were encouraged that off the back of it, we didn't discover there were any major fundamental problems that we yeah. had. But, but that's not the point. No, it just meant we could kind of MOT it and, and just tweak stuff. And I, I feel, actually, I do feel we're in a stronger place as a result of having done that, taken you, time to listen and, and, and to speak. That's brilliant. Do you feel that it's a more comfortable and obvious topic now that you've spent your six weeks opening up those yes. conversations yeah. yes I'm going to put on the show notes what it is because we did that course as well oh did you we've been married about five years and we did it back in London and is it Nikki and Silla it is yes so yes if anyone's interested in that it's in the show notes you don't have to be a church goer to do it do you no not at all anyone not at all. can do it yeah, yeah it is fabulous it's really good and they're very they're very easy to listen to and they're very funny and it's they are. And, the, and the videos the way they're put together it's extremely good yeah i was deeply reticent and didn't want to do it but oh, actually and then when we did it then it was fine but um it. Yeah. yeah it is great i've just done a couple of weeks where we've been doing the family mission statement yes Stephen kobe have you thought as a couple about what your core values are i think no would be my simple answer uh, the longer answer would be, I think there are things that are intrinsic values for us as a couple, stuff that's important to us, mm. which we try and communicate to the kids as well. 
well, one of those being communication and time, uh, part of it being, you know, we're people of faith, so that's a value and a, I think something which is of importance to us to make space for that. Mm. And also the value of being there for other people as well. Yes. And, you know, COVID restrictions aside, we're always very open door and we're very conscious about about being there for other people. Are you? Yeah. Being generous with time and resources and all that sort of thing as well. Are you a drop-in house? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we <laughs> are. We like it. We like when, it. When you can have more than six. Yes. So all this communication, what do you do with it in your working life? So a lot of that, well, it sort of started off with things like pitching and presenting. So it was working with startups who obviously had to talk about what they did and a lot of it was very technical and they weren't very good at it. And I, I found that very quickly I could add value and get them to tell it as a story or turn it into something which was far more compelling. So I started with that and then it's just developed into things like pitching and presenting for larger corporates. I've just been doing some stuff with some salespeople this week who have a, a presentation on how to use their platform and I've been helping them with that. So it's a real mix of stuff really, but mostly it's around, it's either how do you communicate what you do in such a way that people find it compelling and they want to buy it, or it's around internal communication, why is it perhaps things are breaking down in the company, perhaps we're not living in a way internally in terms of how we communicate in such a way that people really get what we're doing and why we're doing it, so internal communications. And then it's also stuff like, um, can you listen to your clients, can you understand them and their needs? How does one person speak to another person? and understand another person. Okay. Yeah. You also teach teenagers, don't you? You talk about stress, self-motivation, you yep. teach them exam techniques. Tell yes, I do. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, a little bit. That used My to be... Charlie has benefited enormously from your work. Oh, that's encouraging. Yes, yes. He did your GCSE for him. Ah, mm. wonderful. I don't do as much as I used to, but I do have a few uh, schools locally and a couple further afield that I go to usually once or twice a year and I will do things like revision skills with them. I co-wrote a book uh, about six years ago on revision. It's a sort of self-help book for teenagers called The Brain Box. Yes. Available from Amazon, Waterstones and all good booksellers. And, um, <laughs> and that will be in the show notes. Yes, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was very helpful because it gave me a profile and schools invite me in to talk about this stuff. Really, it sort of spun from a place of when I was at school, nobody told me how to revise. Yeah. They would just go, sit in a room, do revision. And you'd sit there and I'd stare at my notes and go, I haven't got a flipping clue. So like most people, I'd just read it, copy it out, read it, copy it out, then fall asleep at the kitchen table. Mum would wake me up. I'd have a bit of paper spat into the side of my head. I'd read, make notes. And sometimes just to shake it up a little bit, I'd lie on my bed to do it, which was great because I just fell asleep quicker. And I spent a lot of time just staring at notes, copying stuff out, which is a colossal waste of time. Yeah. It feels productive because you end up with sheets of paper, but actually nothing cognitively goes into the head. So I realised in my experience that actually the, that I didn't know how to revise. And then latterly years later, really through reverse engineering this whole thing about communication, if this is how you put across an idea in a way that it lands, how can you receive an idea in a way that it lands? Okay. And, it's, and it's the same thing, but it's just coming from the other perspective. Is it put in a way that people can really understand what the message is? Is it visual? Because the vast majority of the way human beings understand stuff is in visual language. You know, anthropologists tell us that languages we know it has only really been about for around 33,000 years. No idea how they know that. But the truth is, long before we understood tigers are dangerous, run away, we knew that if we saw something orange and stripy moving in the undergrowth, it was probably a good idea to get out of there. 
So we've turned everything into abstract words. So we say to kids, you know, when you look at your notes in school, what do you see? And they go, words. And well, your brain likes pictures. So how do you take words and turn them into pictures? Right. Which is exactly the same thing that happens when you're trying to communicate an idea as well. You take abstract concepts. How do we add value to your finance function? And how do we put that into, into something that people can see and make tangible? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of mind mapping, I think. Yeah, all that kind of thing. Charlie Sticking it on post it notes, sticking stuff up on the wall. You did, you sent me some pictures that Charlie had done of uh, circulation of the heart and how the brain works. We and kept those. Uh, have you? They were amazing. They were great. And it's one on the First World War. He did one on the run up to that with the League of Nations and all that Absolutely stuff. Absolutely. They huge were brilliant. Pieces. I don't yeah. know what to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't quite bring myself to throw them away because they're fantastic. What made you write a book in the first place? Uh, the guy I wrote it with approached me and said, well, I've been thinking about it for a while, and he approached me and said, we should write a book together. And that felt a little easier than trying to write one on my own. Right. So Are I'm, you quite good collaboration? Yeah, I like collaboration. I find it quite hard to sit in a dingy room on my own and be creative. So I quite like the idea of bouncing ideas uh, off somebody else. So we did a bit of that. And then I actually found it was quite nice to sit on my own and do some writings. Right. And, uh, and, it, and Yeah, yeah, I did. It was good fun. Don't and you it's teach just been translated well? into Pakistani as well. It's gone for, gone on sale in Pakistan. No way. I've no idea why. Apparently, I'm big in Pakistan. So there we go. <laughs> like Michael McIntosh. <laughs> <laughs> He's bigger than the, the Far East, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and you also work with teenagers in presenting and... Yeah, and less debate. so these days. But I used to do stuff on public speaking training for sort of 14, 15, 16-year-olds. Yes, you said that. So what did, what did that look like? So really it was just a day going into schools. There's still people who do it. Speakers Trust do it, Talk the Talk do it all around the country. I used to work with both those those organisations. In fact, I helped set up Talk the Talk. And the idea is that you, you go into a school for a day, you work with about 25 kids, you train them in public speaking skills, and then they stand up and do a three-minute talk at the end of the day, which for a lot of them is just hell on earth. Yeah. But there is sometimes massive transformation that happens as a result of it because it's facing their fears. I think it's the number two fear in this country is death and the number one fear is public speaking. <laughs> yeah, the reality, so we'd rather die. We would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy at the end of the day. And I think with teenagers, it's even more acute. There was some really interesting research where they were, they, they were monitoring brainwaves in certain activities to see levels of stress. So they do stuff like fighter pilots to see what would happen while they were in the heat of intensive manoeuvres. But they also had a group of people, they put them in shop windows and monitored the stress levels of just being sat in the shop window, being looked at by passers-by in adults, oh. which you could see in adults, it, it generated a certain amount of stress and embarrassment. But they conducted the same experiment with teenagers, yeah. which was deeply fascinating because the levels of stress the teenagers were, were showing was the equivalent of that of the fighter pilots in the heat of manoeuvres. No. So there's something about teenagers who hate being the centre of attention. And it's really interesting because what happens is they get an experience of public speaking when they're a teenager. It all goes wrong. They feel dreadful about it. And they never do it again, which is why as adults we've got this huge fundamental problem with public speaking and presenting, which is why I end up doing it with adults in corporate settings as well, because so much of the time they, they've got this massive phobia and go, I can't do presenting, I can't do speaking in front of other people. And I think a lot of it starts with the teenage years, which yeah. is why I loved those programmes. It was great to be a part of something, helping them to break down that that embarrassment and that, uh, that sense of... Um, just fear around communicating because when you're little you have no qualms about doing that stuff no and then when the embarrassment of the fighter pilot stress kicks in in teenage years 
you get all self-conscious about it it all goes wrong and then you just go i can't do it for the rest of my life so if we can tackle it in teenagers and do it effectively that's great and then you don't have to spend so much time taking adults and putting them back together again the vast majority of the coaching that i do around communication skills with adults is around rebuilding confidence I, as I said earlier, I always wanted to be a TV presenter. And when I was about 15, the local minister at church asked me to say something at the front. So of course, wanting to sort of practice and hone these skills, I went, yes, I'm going to do this. So I stood up the front and there's little Timmy looking out at about 120 people with encouraging church face. And you can imagine what that looks like. He's all wide-eyed, ripped to smiles and nodding. And, and I looked out at all these people and I just got brain freeze. The, the amygdala again kicked Aww. in. And I'm stood there, I could feel myself going bright red, my heart pumping in my chest and the palms started sweating. And then, oh my word, I'm 15, tears welling up in the corner of my eyes. And I turned to the minister and I went, I can't do it. And I ran off the platform. Aww. It was the most excruciating moment. And I remember thinking at that moment, well, my dream of being a TV presenter is out the window. I can't do this. And I always remember my friend's mum coming up to me afterwards. Thank you, Linda Clark. And she said, Tim, <laughs> you need to get up and speak in front of people the next opportunity you have, or you will always have a fear of it. Right. Back and, on the horse. Yeah. Back on the horse. And I forced myself to do it. I think it was an English class in school, and I had to present something I'd written. And I did it. And it, it wasn't great, but I did it. And the yeah. confidence came back. And I went from there, and I built from that moment. And, do you know, I was ruffling through a drawer earlier and I found a card that I'd been given from a girl in a school in London. The girl's name was Jamie and I'd been in her school for two days and she was in the group that I had on the first day. And I found the card. She'd bless her. As a 15-year-old, she'd gone home that night, got a card, thank you card, and brought it in for me the next day saying, thank you so much for your encouragement yesterday. That was a really important speech for me to give. And you really gave me the, the courage and the confidence to speak in front of my peers. Mm. And I think to have been part of that journey mm. was an absolute privilege. But it's just, it's that sense that with a little bit of guidance and coaching and opportunity, I think we can get beyond this fear of communication skills. Mm. And, and it is at the heart of everything. It's the heart of parenting. It's the heart of relationship. Mm. It's at the heart of business. It's at the heart of sales. It's in the, it's at the heart of customer service. It's the heart of friendship. It's all about communication, it isn't is. it? Yeah. How do, yeah. how do we speak to another person? How do we get understood? How do we understand others and build empathy? I couldn't have rounded up better myself. So it only leaves for me to say, A, thank you. It's a that joy. Thank brilliant. you for coming. And B, I'm going to ask you what I ask people who come on my podcast, which is, can you think of a courageous thing that you've done? I think getting married as, yes, a, as an eternal bachelor, I think it was probably at the age, yes. of, the age of 39. It was very funny. I sort of popped the question, not in a particularly good way, and Claire keeps going back to this. And then, <laughs> and then about half an hour later, I think I used the immortal phrase, which all girls want to hear, are we making a mistake? Where I just basically panicked. And there's a photograph of us with a glass of champagne round at a friend's house about three days later, and my face is ashen, and I look horrific. And they're just... I completely panicked. So the idea of proposing and, and wanting to make that commitment for me was deeply courageous and deeply scary. Fortunately, I got through it very quickly and that was the end of the collie wobbles. So, um, <laughs> Where was Mrs. What's-her-name from church at the time? Where was she when I needed her? <laughs> but you did it. And I did, we did, we How did. How many years on? Uh, we are, we're nine years this nine year. Years. Brilliant. Thank you. It's a joy. Thank you. Isn't he fun? Definitely no pretending to be perfect with Tim. And I love that. I love that he takes his parenting seriously, but he doesn't take himself very seriously. So thank you for joining us today. I hope you've scooped up the gems. I've popped them on the blog this week, The Courageous Mama, so you can pick them up there. 
And I'd be so grateful if you rate and review the podcast and pop it to a friend who you think would appreciate it. Or this week, a friend's partner or husband who could do with a boost. And you can find Tim at Blue Caterpillar. Whatever your needs in the field of communication, you'll find the help that you need there. Whether you're a lone communicator in the digital world or running a blue chip company, if you're looking to upskill yourself or your workforce in communication skills or in the all-important world of video conferencing, go to the link Blue Caterpillar in the show notes. And importantly, if you have a child that could benefit from some of the great study pointers, pop to the link to Tim's book, Brain Box. You won't regret it. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of Parenting for Life at that special rate to you if you go to thecourageousmama.com. It also makes a great Christmas present or a newborn present because it's not a preachy book. It's just a book about growing home and how to bed in those all important things, not just in the early years, but in all the years of parenting. And if you feel that you would benefit from some one-to-one chatting just about family life or a place that you might have got stuck or need a little bit of help with, do contact me. My email is also in the show notes. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next week.